right, a few um, housekeeping items here as we get started. First of all, if you can tell, it looks like I'm wearing a Kevlar vest. Uh, I've got a back brace on. I don't want you to think it's a Kevlar vest. Like, does he know something that we don't know that's going to go down? It's not that. Like, I really jacked up my back, and so um, that's why I'm wearing that. Second thing uh, is Job. I had you read Job. Yeah, I didn't have you read the part that I needed you to read. So if you're reading that, wondering how in the world that fits in, it doesn't. Uh, but I really, really hope you enjoyed that little encouraging portion of Scripture there. In some ways, Eliphaz the Timonite, he didn't, he didn't show proper submission to God. So that's how we're going to work it in. Like, he gave bad advice. Okay, uh, third thing then is for next week. Next week, um, I'll be here, but I won't be preaching. Jason will be here preaching, so you don't have an assignment for next week. Other than this, I really, um, and, and you all can make your own determination about him, but having met him, just please um, make him feel welcome and his family feel welcome. I'm sure that you will, but by that what I mean is afterwards, you don't just smile, but go up and say to him, you know, hey, I'm sure that was really good where you came from, but you will never be Peter Heck, okay? <laughs> I really think that that will make him want to be part of our family. All right, so that's what I'm looking for. All right, that's the assignment. So if we came up with, if I asked you to come up with the least popular word or term or idea in the Bible, culturally speaking, this is Independence Day weekend, so American culture, American society, that is our society, our pagan nation, what is that word in the Bible that would rub our society the worst. I honestly believe it's what we read about this week in 1 Peter chapter 2. That word right there, and there's a lot of them in scripture that's going to send bristles down the spine of American society and American culture and people in American society that embrace it. But I think submission is probably the worst. And the reason it's so unpopular is it fits perfectly with everything we've said. Remember, what we've been trying to do is learn to act like Jesus, and we're seeing how that contrasts with the way that the world acts. And the reason submission is so unpopular in our culture is because it's the precise opposite of everything our culture does and believes. Submission teaches respect and obedience to those in authority. That's the idea of submission. But what does our culture teach? What does our culture embrace? We're to question authority. Don't just go along with what you're told. You question all authority. I speak my truth. I'm the captain of my own ship. That may be true for you, but it may not be true for me. And I'm not just going to go along because that's what you say. Uh, you'll hear it sometimes said, I love my country, but I hate the government. And people object all the time to the actions and the policies of government. And I'm not going to do this. I don't have to do this. And we, we think and believe that that is the essence of Americanism and rugged individualism. Well, it may be, but that's the precise opposite of submission. Submission to authorities. I remember uh, several years ago, I was, it's back when Dr. Ritchie, who's now the superintendent at Eastern, was the principal at Eastern, and Mr. Fugit, who's now the principal, was the assistant principal. So I go into the office to get my mail out of my mailbox, and there is a dad in there just reading Dr. Ritchie, the riot act, just going off on him. I can't believe that you do that to my son. You suspended him and blah, blah, blah. He's put all these years into Eastern and done all of this stuff. So it's getting a little bit vocal. And Dr. Ritchie's a bigger guy. So I'm standing over by the mailbox and I just kind of act like I'm going through my mail, but I'm looking at the same pieces. Because I, I mean, I'm not saying, but if something goes down, 
I may get involved. So I'm watching all of this unfold. And as he's flipping, and I'm flipping through the mail, and I hear his dad just goes off for like two or three minutes. Richie doesn't say a word. And then after the dad stops, Dr. Richie very calmly just says, do you even know what your son did? And the dad responds, no, but I'm telling you that, and he just keeps going. And at that point, I was trying not to laugh. So I just walked out of the office. But you pick up on that, right? He didn't even know what his son had, did, had done, but he was... Said, I teach school. Anyway, okay, he didn't even know what his son had done, but he was angry with the principal. How dare you suspend my son? His son could have sawed off a, a, a girl's arm during lunchtime, but it, it's outrageous that you would do this. That's the mentality that we have. So many in our culture. You, you can't tell me. You can't boss me around. You're not the boss of me. You're not in charge of me. Submission to authority, any kind of authority, is exceedingly unpopular. And then, submission is bad enough on its own. But then you get to this line in our PC culture that we live in. You know the one that I'm talking about. In Ephesians 5, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And that's like a powder keg. And in society, it's over, baby. Once you throw that line out, right, that wives are to submit to their husbands in the home as they submit to the Lord. And don't you notice whenever we talk about submission, that's the line that always comes up? This is the danger when you live in a culture that is peripherally familiar with Scripture. By that I mean we know enough of Scripture to make ourselves dangerous. We know little bits and pieces of the word. We see things repeated online and quotes of scripture put online. We find verses that make us feel better or feel worse in a particular situation. But that's the depth of our understanding of scriptures. We know that it says that. We know that it says wives submit to your husbands as, as you do to the Lord in the home. But we're not familiar with the entire context of submission that surrounds that. People can quote that one verse, and people do quote that one verse, but they never bother to discuss the full context around it. It's the problem when you live in a soundbite culture. And you see this when it comes to anything on, on television. What does Fox News do? They'll catch the Democrats saying one thing, and they'll take a snippet of it, and they'll play that, and that'll be all the context you get. And MSNBC and CNN and NBC and CBS and ABC and all of the others will do that very same thing to the Republicans. They'll take one little snippet that my kids do this to me at school. With the phones, they record stuff. A few years ago, I was teaching about Adolf Hitler, and I was pointing it because the logical question is how could the journalists Germans ever have gone along with Hitler. And I was pointing out the unbelievably depressed economic state when people are starving to death, they're going to be willing to put up with a lot of crazy if you're willing to help put food on their table. And so what I said in class was, in their eyes, Hitler wasn't that bad. And what do my kids do? They get that on an audio recording and just clip off the all caps. And so now whenever they want to stick it to me, they just play the recording of me saying, Hitler wasn't that bad, over and over. So if I ever get fired, now you know why that happened. There's multiple. We have decided what we believe. This is what happens. We decide what we believe. We decide what is right for us in the circumstance, a situation. That's what we believe, and so then we'll rip a line out of Scripture to support it. That's what we do, and it's what happens with this idea. I'll give you a few examples. If you ask me to come up with the most misinterpreted passages of Scripture, I'll go to my grave believing that this first one is the single most misinterpreted and misrepresented passage. Does anybody know what I'm going to say? No guesses as to what the most misinterpreted is. 
Yeah, 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 I don't know who said it, but somebody said, yeah, Dick Mosier, of course, former chairman of the elders. You're not on his level. That's exactly right. Okay, Matthew 7, 1. What is it? It's right here. Do not judge or you too will be judged. Every time a Christian starts to address the fact that I don't think that this is morally appropriate, uh, judge not. You're going to be judged if you say that. That's what we do. Jesus is not telling his listeners to avoid discernment. Discernment and judging between right and wrong and good and bad and true and false and yes and no. Knowing what sin is, that's kind of a key part of being a follower of Jesus. He's not saying that you can't do that very thing. What he's teaching is, in your view, you keep your own sins in sight. Don't sit in judgment of somebody else believing that you are not going to be held to the same standard that you are holding them. Judge after you have repented. That's why he says, remove what? Remove the plank from your own eye... And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. In other words, you're still removing the speck from your brother's eye. You're helping him see his sin. But do it after you've removed the plank from your own eye. We totally misinterpret that passage of scripture. Then there's this one. We do this one in this church. We'll say it. I know you say it. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. And sometimes we use this as a reason why well, I don't need to go to church because I got three people in my family and we're gathered in his name. That means Jesus is here. It's just as good as going to church. You do understand that Matthew 18 is about church discipline, right? The whole passage is about what to do when a brother sins against you in the church. And what it's saying is that if two or three witnesses, their testimony agrees in Jesus' name, that Jesus is there in agreement with them. That's what that passage is talking about. I don't know if you're aware of this, but I don't need another one of you or another two of you with me for Jesus to be with me. The Holy Spirit lives in me. I don't need two or three together for Jesus to be here. But this is talking about church discipline. But we misinterpret that passage. And then there's this one. Oh, you know it. Tim Tebow's got this all over his little eye stuff right here. Philippians 4.13, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Sometimes you'll see it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Just depends on the translation. And people do all kinds of crazy stuff with this. They tattoo it on everything it becomes. I used to really be into water skiing. And there is this guy. You can find this clip online. It is fantastic. There's this guy who goes, he's a younger guy. He does all of these uh, water skiing competitions. And it's pretty impressive to me. But on the bottom of his little wakeboard, when he does the single board skiing, he has tattooed this phrase on the bottom of it. That I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So Christ is apparently strengthening him to do the slalom course out on the ocean, or on the lake. My question is, what happens when things go bad? What happens when this occurs? This is that dude that has it written on the bottom of his water ski. feels a lot better. Anyway, so what happened there? I mean, Christ is supposed to be strengthening him. Did Christ just take the afternoon off? This is the issue. Paul is not saying you can do anything because Christ is going to give you the strength to do anything. I cannot go out and become an NFL linebacker. I lack the ability. I'd get myself killed if I went out there and just say, well, Christ is going to give me the strength to do this. You know what he's actually saying in this passage is we can endure all modes and methods of suffering if we are in Christ, that he will strengthen us through that suffering, which I guess does apply to that last little thing, that Christ will strengthen him as he goes into traction and lays in the body cast for a long period of time. And then there's this one. One more, and then we'll get on with the submission stuff. 
God is love. We quote this all the time. You hear it in the culture. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And so what do we do? We take this and we take whatever relationship we are in or that we desire, even if it's something that God has expressly forbid, and what do we say? Well, I'm loving, and if I'm loving, then God is in this because God is love. In other words, he supports what I decide to love, or what I decide to call love, God is automatically in that because God is love. Notice who's determining what love is there. I am, and then I'm just attaching God's name to it because God is love. Okay? As though God is just attached. Here's the thing. God doesn't just attach himself to whatever it is that we call love. God is love. He defines what love is. Your definition of love should match the definition of God's character. If you want to know what love is, that's a foreigner song. Yeah? I want to know what love is. Finish it. Heathens. Heathens. <laughs> that was a bait and you took it. All right. Repent. Anyway, yeah. Uh, you want to know what know what God? Uh, uh -huh. You want to know what love is? Then know God. Can you tell I'm on pain medication this morning? <laughs> Feeling pretty good. Uh, you want to know what? No, you know who God is, and you compare whatever activity it is or whatever uh, feeling you have to the character of God, and that will tell you whether or not that is actual biblical love. And God is much more than love. Also, He's complete justice. And, and holiness, all of those things. He is, is, is the definition of all of those attributes. So this verse, to wives submit to your husbands, fits right in with that. We rip it out of context and totally misconstrue it. We use it, some people will use it to subjugate women. They'll use it to beat women over the head and say, hey, you're supposed to submit to me. Women, you're supposed to submit. Or people who don't like Christianity will take that verse and will then use it in the culture to say Christianity subjugates women. Look at what it says for women to do. But the full counsel of Scripture teaches that all of us must submit. That every single person must submit. That submission is part of our calling. Wives, notice this is not women, Women are never told to submit to men. Wives in the home, a specific circumstance, then you submit to husbands in the home. Husbands, not all men, husbands, you submit to Christ in the home. There's an authority structure there. Children, you submit to your parents in the home. All of us submit to the government, whether we like those who are leading the government or not, we submit to them, whether we like our current tax rate or not. What did Jesus say? You render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Now, in the United States, we have the ability to elect people, and so we certainly can object at the ballot box and those things, but we are called to be people of submission to the government. Church members, you are to submit to the eldership of your local church body. And servants, you submit to your masters. And in our modern parlance, what does that mean? That means our bosses. Yes, you submit to your bosses. Your Christian character should be defined by submission. And if you find yourself in a position where you can no longer to submit to that boss because he's outrageous and he's abusive and she's cruel and she's unbiblical, then find another job. But so long as you are there, your character means you submit, even to the slave drivers. I'm trying to think of an example of this. 
Uh, the best one I can come up with, um, some of you, uh, you know we've got a really good preschool here at Jerome, and Ashley has led that preschool for years and done an outstanding job. Well, last week it was announced that Shelly Colbert is going to take over as the preschool director. I don't know if you are aware of what kind of leadership she's going to provide, but this is a text message I received from Shelly Col uh, Colbert two weeks ago. Uh, I'm going to read this to you. She said, question for you, do you know if they're going to announce my new rule as preschool director? this morning during church. Dave Stokes told me last Sunday they would, but I know he isn't there this morning. Ashley Green is wanting to blah, 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 blah. All right, so as you can see, I never responded. And then she said, never mind, we figured it out. And then I said, glad I could help. So anyway, that's how I typically have text. Now listen, did you pick up on what she said? And this is what we call a Freudian slip. I'm going to zoom in on this. Are they going to announce my new rule as preschool director? Not role. She'll tell you she meant my new role. No, she plans to rule this thing with an iron fist. So when the new preschool teachers come in and Shelly starts laying down the law or budding little Mussolini over here, they're going to have to submit to that. That's the reality. That's what I'm talking about. Whoever, you ought to be very careful in sending me text messages because this is a possibility for every single one of you that you're going to be used in such a way. But this is what I'm talking about. You submit to your bosses. Submission, then, is not a female virtue. That's not what it is. Submission is not a female virtue. It is a Christian virtue. So Christian wives are being told you need to do this, just like Christian husbands are being told you've got to do this. Submission is the value. So when we talk about submission... It is really silly, it is ridiculously silly to always focus on wives in the home. That's one of the smallest parts of what's being talked about. We should talk about how all Christians submit to whatever authority is placed over them. That's our role. And frankly, I'll be honest, if I was a woman, I'd get really tired of hearing this verse all the time. And why? Because nine times out of ten, it's being used to bludgeon me by people who don't understand their own submission. They're using that to bludgeon me, not understanding that they shouldn't be doing that if they were in proper submission to the authority of Christ. Because Christ never used those things to belittle other people. And the people who so often are doing that are not submitting to his authority over them. And I get really frosted if that was me. And think about how that looks from the outside. Have you ever paused to consider that? Church leaders are going to rabble-rouse about, we don't have to follow the government's authority, we follow the authority of God. And we're not going to do this, and we're not going to do that. And they're proud, and they're abrasive. This is what the world is seeing, proud and abrasive. And then they look at women and tell them to submit to men. How is the world going to interpret that? What are they going to understand about Christianity? First of all, that's not even scriptural, women submitting to men. Nowhere in scripture. It's about a specific instance of wives. And we'll do that if we do a, a, a series on family and all of that. But we oftentimes take it a step further and we totally misunderstand what submission is and make it mean surrender. Okay, that's not what submission means. What is submission? It's where you voluntarily bend your will to comply with the will of another who is in authority over you. We resolve, pick this up right here. We resolve to yield our will and our mind and our body for God's purposes. So, what's the end result? We can better hear and receive and obey his word. That's the point of submission. That's why we're being taught to submit. When we submit to others, we're not serving them. We're serving Christ. How do I know that? Look at this passage from Colossians. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. So when the preschool teachers have to obey yet another decree that comes from 
Shelly. What are they doing? They're not working for Shelly. They're working for Jesus. When your boss puts another project on your back and you don't know how to do it, but you submit to it, you're not working for them. You're working for Jesus, not for human masters, since you know that you'll receive an inheritance for the Lord, from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Your work is a form of worship to Christ. When you come to him, that submissive spirit should be evident in your earthly relationships. Here's what submission is not. It's not a loss of your identity. It's not a loss of your personality. In fact, you are free to be more content in your relationship with others and your relationship with God. Submission is not hating yourself. It's not beating yourself up. In fact, here's what it is. It's properly ordered, respectful relationships with God and with other people. And it really tamps down on the conflict as well. And in the end, here's what submission is choosing to do. That's it. He's the example why do I say we need to submit? Because Jesus was the embodiment of submission. He didn't have to. If anybody didn't have to submit to an authority, wouldn't it be the Son of God? And yet he did. I want you to flip, if you didn't already, 1 Peter chapter 2. It's where you were. I want to skip to the end of this and then we'll back up in a second. But start in verse 21 of 1 Peter chapter 2. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Can I pause for a minute? Is that my character? Man, if you, if you hurl insults at me, my natural inclination is to fire back. But Jesus didn't retaliate. When I suffer, I'm going to get back at the people that made me suffer. But Jesus makes no threats. And how could he do that? Because he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He knows how this all works out in the end, do I? Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. Jesus lived the perfect life of submission. The perfect life of submission. He submitted to the Father and the Father's will, which led him to the cross. Didn't have to, but he chose to submit to the will of the Father. He submitted to unjust authorities. Do you know how hard it would be to be there knowing, and he even says this, I mean, when, when the disciples want to get the swords out and start chopping people up for coming after Jesus, he says to them, are, are you unaware of the fact that I could say one word and legions of angels would come down and just wreak bloody havoc. I don't think he used those words, but that's essentially what he's. I could, in one, that's all it would take. I'm completely in control of this situation, but I'm submitting to this for a reason. That's the life of Jesus. I remember what he says to Pilate. When Pilate says, are you not going to answer me? Do you not know I have the authority to crucify you? What does he say back? I'm giving you that authority. I mean, you have that authority because I've given it to you. What is that indicative of? Someone who is submitting to an authority. He's going further than that. He's giving them the authority over him so that he can fulfill scripture. So in order to be like that, what are you and I to do? We'll back up a few verses. Look at verse 13. He's the example, so what do we do? Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men 
whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. You live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also those who are harsh. Submission is the attitude and the life embodiment of a Christian. So that just means I do whatever they say. That's what you're telling me. Can I grumble? Can I whine about it behind the scenes? Can I object to it? I mean, can I, can I raise a ruckus about the whole thing when I'm not there? Jesus teaches otherwise. I want you to look at this passage. Flip back to John. John chapter 13. I know you know this story. I want to look at it. But before we get to the entire story, I want to go to verse 20. Start in verse 20 and then we're going to back up. So you're in John 13. Look at verse 20. And Jesus says to his disciples, to his followers, I tell you the truth, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me, meaning the Father. All right, so what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, I am sending, get this, because he's talking to you too. I am sending you out as my representatives. What an awesome responsibility that is. What a privilege that is. That I am Jesus' representative in the world. What they see of me is what many of them will know of Christ. I am his representative. If they accept you, Peter, if they accept you, Andrew, if they accept you, James, then they will accept me. And he's saying that to all of you too. If they accept you, then they will accept me. And if they accept me, then they accept the Father. And so because of that, here's the kind of person you must be. I'm sending you out as a representative, so if you're going to represent me... Here is the character you need to have. That's what verse 20 said. You follow me? Okay. Now we'll back up and we'll look at exactly what we're talking about. The best way to put this, and it's going to really make some of you happy and it'll really annoy some of you. The best way to put this. Several years ago at the Democratic National Convention, Michelle Obama gave a speech. It was a very well-received speech. And in the speech, if any of you watched it, if any of you remember it or saw the clips online, at the, towards the end, she made a statement about what her dad had always taught her about when, you know, you're mistreated and all of this stuff. And the phrase that she used was, when they go low, we go high. Okay? And she used this phrase. And of course, then there's political bickering about the whole thing. But I want you to remember that phrase. When they go low... We go high. You want to get this, John chapter 13, remember what Michelle Obama said and then do the exact opposite, okay? When she says, they go low, we go high, we're going to reverse that entire thing. That's what Jesus does. Look at John 13, verses 1 through 3. We're, we're same chapter, so you don't have to flip too far. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. So the crucifixion's right in front of him. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Look at verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Okay, so what does verse 3 tell you? Right there, it sums it up. Jesus has the highest authority that there is. All things are in his power. God has given him control over all things. He has come from God and he is going back to God. 
So on the sliding scale of authority and who has the power, there is no one and nothing that has more authority or power than Jesus. That's what verse 3 tells us. And then what does Jesus do? He is high, and what does he do? Well, look at verses 4 and 5. He goes low. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a, big, a basin and began to wash his disciples' dirty, crusty, fungus-ridden feet. I added a little bit to that. Drying them with the towel that was wrapped around. And remember, they're walking in sandals or they're walking barefoot. So those are some nasty feet. They don't have clippers. You know what the toenails look like. You know what's growing underneath. And Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, has now taken off his outer garment and is on his knees washing the feet... The nasty feet of his disciples. What a servant would do. And not just the disciples. The guy who just betrayed him to Roman authorities. Jesus is washing their feet. You don't know the boss that I've got. Really? Your boss so bad he betrayed you to the government and you're going to be executed on a cross that bad? Jesus washed Judas's feet. He submitted himself. That's what he does. He is high. As high as he can possibly be. And he goes low. Remember that. You want an example. That's what we do. Jesus turns everything on its head. We've talked about this before. Everything that we human beings think of as powerful and important and significant and of prestige and honor. Jesus turns it all on its head. And says you're thinking about this backwards. Don't think like men. Think like God. And he's saying that that's what his representatives will do. He has sent you out to represent him. If you are a person who loves prestige and you love privilege and you love being served, you are not an effective representative of Jesus. It's those of us who have that privilege who will shed that privilege and get on our knees and wash the fungus feet. Those are the ones who understand what it means to be a follower of Christ. And he explains it to them. Look ahead to verse 12. Just in case they weren't picking up on it. When he had finished washing their feet, he put his clothes on and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've said it. This is why whenever you hear that phrase, wives submit to your husbands, it gives the impression that the wife just has to do whatever the husband says. Are you not picking up on the example of Jesus? Jesus didn't lord his authority over others. He, he sacrificed himself for the good of others. And that's why in the following verse when it says, Husbands, you love your wife as Christ loved the church. What is that saying? You know, wives, you need to submit to a husband who is sacrificing and giving up everything on your behalf. He has your best interest in mind, just as Christ had the best interest in the church. This isn't a model for authority to beat someone over the head. This is a model for a happy home is what it is. Yes, so many of us get, oh, well, I'm not going to do that. I, I know better than that. We're going to set this up in an egalitarian system, and we're going to follow the teachings. of What are you doing? I mean, it's right here. Follow the example of Christ. I have set you as an example. I've set you an example. This is verse 15. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. He says this is an example in verse 15. We are his followers. Are we following that example? And then check out verse 16 one more time. Read it one more time. This is a good line. Here it is. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, 
nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus is saying to us, you have no authority to say that my action here in washing my disciples' feet doesn't apply to you. I'm your master. You are not greater than me. So don't say, well, yeah, Jesus washed the feet, but I'm in a position where I don't need to do that. No, 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 no. If Jesus did it, then you need to do it. If I, the absolute highest that have all authority from God, if I have gone low, then you, who are lower than me, have no excuse but to do it yourself. Our fitness to be his representatives in this world is tied to whether we will gladly go low. And that's my question for you this morning. Do we? We are servants. That is the mentality of a follower of Christ. Is that our mentality? Is that the way we see ourselves? The degree to which we are servants to the lowest is the degree that we are serving God. And you say, oh, now wait a minute. How far is that to go? Well, I'm happy to answer that for you. How far did it go for Jesus? This is the passage in Philippians 2. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. He didn't have to. He was God in the flesh, but he took on the role of a servant, made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." How far should our submission go? All the way, if that's what's required of us. We have the highest of callings, but we are not, we, we're not qualified, not qualified if earthly rank interests us. If that's a pursuit of yours, if that's a desire of yours, so be it. But don't claim to be following Christ. You're being a poor representative of the one you're supposed to be representing. Look at verse 17, one more point, and then we'll wrap up. Verse 17, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. If you humble yourself and wash those crusty feet of those that are lower than you, if you do that, I'm telling you, the God of eternity, the maker of heaven and earth, you will be blessed. If you understand who he is, and if you understand what a privilege it is to be used by him, if you understand what an honor it is to be his representative here on earth, you will find the deepest joy in dipping low to serve with him. That's a guarantee from the author of all creation. My son Grayson has an obsession right now. They're called the um, uh, Who Was books. It's like a series of books. I really want him to go out and like play a sport. And he's like, nah, dad, let me read this book to you. I'm like, no, let's, let's go play ball. Nah, I'd like to read this. Who is George Washington? Okay. Um, so, you know, we're giving up certain dreams, but we're embracing others and that's fine. Um, so Grayson has this obsession and he's got all of these books, you know, who was this? Who was Albert Einstein? Who was Madame Curie? And who was all of these other people? And I'm learning a lot from my son, but he has this book. Who was Booker T. Washington? Booker T. Washington, some of you know Booker T. and the Tuskegee Institute and all of that. Uh, this, is a, this is a passage from this book. I don't know if you knew this about Booker T. A truly humble man is hard to find, yet God delights to honor such selfless people. Booker T. Washington, the renowned black educator, was an outstanding example of this truth. Shortly after he took over the presidency of the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, he was walking in an exclusive section of town when he stopped by a wealthy white woman. Not, he was stopped by a wealthy white woman. Not knowing the famous Mr. Washington by sight, she asked if he would like to earn a few dollars by chopping wood for her. 
Because he had no pressing business at the moment, Professor Washington smiled, rolled up his sleeves, and proceeded to do the humble chore that she had requested. When he was finished, he carried the logs into the house and stacked them by the fireplace. A little girl recognized him and later revealed his identity to the lady. The next morning, the embarrassed woman went to see Mr. Washington in his office at the Institute and apologized profusely. It's perfectly all right, madam, he replied. Occasionally, I enjoy a little manual labor. Besides, get this, it's always a delight to do something for a friend. She shook his hand warmly and assured him that his meek and gracious attitude had endeared him and his work to her heart. And not long afterward, she showed her admiration by persuading a large portion of her wealthy acquaintances into donating what would be millions of dollars to the Tuskegee Institute, an act of submission. And he was rewarded for that act of submission. His humility paid off. In an earthly circumstance, it paid off because his Tuskegee Institute got a lot of money because of it. Our reward is far greater than thousands of dollars to whatever earthly institute we're a part of. Elders, heads of the home, company presidents, bosses, supervisors, managers, parents, valedictorians, popular kids. Listen, the example is clear. Will you follow it and go low? Father God, I thank you for the example that we have in Christ Jesus. Not to think more highly of ourselves than we should. But he who was the highest of all took on the role of a servant giving of himself, giving up himself, serve humanity. Father, forgive us for the arrogance and the pride in our hearts and our minds that tells us that we don't have to do the same. But Father, instead, inspire us and motivate us to find great joy in giving to those who are less fortunate, not just our resources and our money, but our time and our efforts. Father, help us this week to find those that we can serve and serve in Jesus' name in whom we pray all of these things, and everyone said, amen. You have a decision to make. You want to start following Christ. You want to start going low and being this example. Would you come this morning? Would you confess his name before this body? Would you be baptized into him? Join our fellowship. Would you come as we stand and as we sing just now?